you really have decided to sell, then you can only sell. So there's a certain emotional attachment that most sellers have, or many do. And they, of course, all think their land is the best piece of land around. (laughs) And so the value should be commensurate with that. Best ever listeners, before today's episode, I want to invite you to join us in Keystone, Colorado, February 20th through 22nd. It is the 2020 Best Ever Conference. And not only do I want to invite you to join us, I want to invite you to earn 15% for every ticket that you're responsible for selling should you join as an affiliate for the conference. Great way to earn money. And also, if you're planning on attending, great way to pay for your ticket, essentially. You get enough sales. So you can go to BEC20.com. And in the top left corner, it says earn 15% as an affiliate. You can click that, join the affiliate program, and you got all the resources that you need to share the good word about the Best Ever Conference in Keystone, Colorado. And we will be talking more about this on future episodes. But for now, go check out BEC20.com and that affiliate page. You can earn 15% as an affiliate, and we will see you in Keystone, Colorado. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of the fluffy stuff with us today. Scott Choppin. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing good, Joe. Nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. And looking forward to our conversation a little bit about Scott. He's a founder of Urban Pacific, a real estate development and advisory company. He's been involved in development, acquisition, or syndication of 1,900 affordable multifamily units based in Long Beach, California. So that being said, Scott, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Absolutely. So our company and my background has been in real estate development really for my entire life. I come from a multi-generational family in the real estate development business. So my family's been in real estate development in Southern California since 1960. So I grew up around the business, gave me a background on what real estate developers do, how you make it a career and how you be profitable in it. And I've worked for a couple major companies. I worked for a subsidiary of what used to be known as Kaufman and Broad or now KB Home. And that division was an apartment syndication and development arm of that major Fortune 500 billion company. And then I worked for a company called Ceres Regis Group, which is a regional apartment development company in Southern California based in Orange County. So my entire career history, family background, and now 19 years of having formed and running Urban Pacific Group, all is laser focused on the real estate development space. What does Urban Pacific Group do exactly? We are a real estate developer that has focused since I started the company in 2000 on urban infill real estate development. So urban is what everybody would expect. Infill, for those who don't know, is basically finding sites that are vacant or underutilized in an already existing urban metro area and then putting a real estate development project together on that piece of land or on that asset with the intention of producing new construction apartment projects that we either sell merchant build style or own long-term with all the advantages of being in urban locations. What's the most challenging project in the last five years that you've worked on? Great question. So I'll give you an example of what we did. So we worked on an asset in Westminster, Colorado, which is about halfway between downtown Denver and Boulder. And that was a 16-acre site that, in fact, the city of Westminster owned 
and we took on the development of that project under the auspices of the city's vision of creating a new downtown node. And that ended up being about a 10-year project, five years which were 0708 recession, at which time we were not working on it. But we came back in 2013 and finished and actually entirely re-entitled the project, redesigned it to be coherent with the now new trend, although it's been going for a while, of infill apartment assets in the Denver market. So that one was certainly one of the longest, I would say. Did did you have to pivot in the vision of what you were initially planning on doing? We did, actually. We started working on the project in 2004. And at that time, as everybody knows, the market was very strong. And in particular, condo projects were much more viable in that 04, 05, 06 Mm -hmm. time period. So we entitled the original project as something like seven or 800 units of predominantly condo, although we had a little bit of new construction apartments in there, mid and not quite high rise, but pretty dense which worked at the time because the sale prices of condos supported that land price plus that bill cost. Mm-hmm. And then the recession came. And as everybody also tracked, condos were probably one of the worst hit portions of the market, at least in the space of and domains that we work in, urban infill. And so when we came back in 2012, 2013, it was a completely different market. We had learned lots of lessons in the recession and applied those. And so basically pivoted to doing the project entirely as a slightly lower density, purely apartment development project. Okay. Did you have any mixed use in there? You know, this project in particular, Joe, was interesting because it was right next door to a a major retail project called the Westminster Promenade, which was anchored by Dave and Buster's and Edwards Theater lots of retail. So we didn't have to do mixed use in the way I think you're meaning. I would might call this a vertical mixed use or horizontal mixed use, which is next door. It's not Mm. stacked over, right? But you could walk out your front door and be at the movie theater in five minutes. And the surrounding area around that had been developed with a lot of urban amenities, parks and a skating rink and some hotel assets. So we didn't need to do the vertical retail below. It made all the sense in the world to have very walkable, on-grade apartments, plus simpler to execute on the construction. We ultimately did a joint venture with Lennar's, what's called the Multifamily Communities Investment Arm, which is think of their apartment arm, mm-hmm. Lennar, the home builder. And that asset completed probably about three years ago. And why bring in a JV partner? It was a big project, probably all told about $100 million on a single project. So we do this quite often where we'll joint venture with others to bring in capacities that maybe we have, but it allows us to do bigger projects, more projects, more volume. Right. And spread risk. At that time, let's see, this would have been about 2014, 2015 that we completed the re-entitlement process. And at that time, downtown Denver and Denver metro area had something like 15,000 units of apartment assets in the pipeline. Mm. And so you look at the marketplace and you go, okay, we have to judge at the time, what's the appropriate course of action? Do we build it? Do we JV it? Maybe we just entitle it and sell it. That's sometimes an option, like not build at all. So in this case, it made sense. And Lennar was hungry. Their division was new and they were trying to accomplish a certain production volume for their investment dollars. So us JVing made sense to them and to us. 
So in that case, would then there be three partners, the city plus the new partner plus you all? In this case, the city was just the land seller. Um, So we bought the land from them and then did the development project. Although interesting dynamic of having the city who's the approving body, right? They have to (laughs) give you the entitlements and they own it. (laughs) Right. They, at the time, the staff and the council were very aligned with what we had produced as the original urban infill vision Uh as part of this horizontal mixed use. They were very ambitious. Most cities don't buy land sort of speculatively. So at that time, that staff and that council was very aggressive in a positive way. So we just happened to come together with them with our urban infill style of development with their visionary of producing a mixed use horizontal type downtown. Think of it, right? New town Mm -hmm. center type situation. And when you bring in a joint venture partner on this type of scale, what is the typical way you structure it? Well, as you know, having structured all the deals that you've done over your career, there's infinite number of ways to structure it. Mm -hmm. In this case, it was just some version of participating shares in the LLC that developed the project with each party basically being rewarded by their back-end profits as to what they brought. So generically, we might say, hey, look, Urban Pacific brought the relationship with the city, delivered the entitlements has the land in site control. And then Lennar brings heavy duty financial capacity, brought their own equity. So we just negotiated a back-end share based on those capacities that are brought to the table. And I say it that way, Joe, because in speaking with people who are trying to form joint ventures, or Mm -hmm. in some cases, when we advise people, as we do in our advisory teams, there's no set standard of how one might do it. Now, some investors may say, hey, I only do JVs this way. I only do this split. Here's what I offer. But there's infinite number of ways to negotiate a structure. Obviously, everybody's looking for a win-win, right? Mm -hmm. And sometimes I've had lots of JV offers that weren't accepted. They said, no, we can't fit that with how we want to do it. We approach a lot of land owners to do land JVs. That's a pretty Mm -hmm. typical move that we make. Although the ratio of success in land JVs, at least in our experience, is fairly low. Why is that? Land sellers, they want to sell if they're sellers, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea of participating on a longer timeline and also on a land JV, they would participate their land into the partnership. Yep. Which puts them at some risk, right? They lose control of it, or at least in the sense that they don't own it directly. They own shares in an LLC that owns the land now after the JV's formed. So some land sellers, they just don't have that appetite for risk and no fault of theirs, right? They've said, hey, here, our philosophy is we want to sell. Although I do say, Joe, being a land seller is actually really hard because me as a buyer, as a developer, I can always basically move on, right? If it doesn't work, if it doesn't underwrite, if it's too expensive, if the entitlements are too hard, I move on to the next one, assuming my real estate acquisition team is doing the work that they're supposed to, which is producing lots of new opportunities to look at. Mm-hmm. Whereas a land seller, if you really have decided to sell, then you can only sell. Yeah. So there's a certain emotional attachment that most sellers have, or many do. And they, of course, all think their land is the best piece of land around. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so the value should be commensurate with that. Well, speaking of emotions, 2004 is when you started this project and then the recession hit. 2007, 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. 
had you purchased the land or were you in the entitlement process where the purchase was contingent on it being entitled? Great question. So we, as a standard practice, never close on land unentitled for this okay. exact reason. The yep. scenario of 08 was exactly why you don't close land and then go get your entitlement. So the deal we had structured with the city was it was contingent. We would close only upon granting of entitlements and then a certain period of time afterwards. So the city had actually, if I recall, had actually approved the project. Like we had gotten through city council and they had done all that they were supposed to do. And we were in that time period between that and the closing. And then September of 08, obviously the world split apart. So we just approached the city and said, hey, look, the economy's off. It's not an appropriate time. It's now too dense, too expensive. Condo market's off. That was the narrative that we spoke to the city. Mm -hmm. And we said, hey, we love working with you guys. It's just not the right time to do this. It also helped that we probably left hard deposits in the deal that they got of about 200000 Okay. So we don't wish that to lose that deposit, but it's better that we lose 200000 than bought a $5 million piece of ground that is no longer viable, right? In the middle of a recession. So that's the trade is, do you do option money? escrow hard non-refundable deposits and pass-throughs or do you buy the land and take that risk i'll always take the deposits and ostensibly right assume we lose those but we're protected on the downside because we don't own the land right and since you had the 200k non-refundable i imagine you weren't able to negotiate maybe you were a better price since the value I'm guessing was mm-hmm. lower than what you originally had the option to purchase it for? It's a good question. So two things came out of it. So when we came back in 2012, 2013, a couple of other developers had tried to work on the site, but they had really not the vision that we had and that it was same staff, same council, and they recognized that they were going to make a choice. Either we choose to go with somebody whose vision we agree with, like ours, or other developers can come in and maybe they get the vision, maybe they don't. But leaving the 200000 built goodwill with the city. Typically, I think most developers would say they would fight it. They might go legal, not all, but some. So our orientation is always for the long term, right? We build and hold assets for a long run. We want to have long-term relationships with cities that have these kind of deals. So that was part of the calculus that we did when we left the 200 in, is we said, look, we like this deal. We like working with you. We like the location. It was really once in a lifetime location. So we did the math and said, this is what we're willing to bet. And when we came back in 2012, it was after having talked to other groups that they saw what we had offered was better still on the project, but also there was this, hey, you didn't fight us on the 200, you built goodwill. And when we came back in, we actually got the same purchase price that we had. But here's the trick, Joe. This is a purchase price from 2004. Uh, Okay. It was still a very good value. And it was still unentitled at that point, right? Or at least unentitled in the sense of what the new trend in the market was in 2012, which is all apartments. And they didn't really politically want to do all apartments. Westminster is one of those cities, as many are, that, hey, we would rather have for sale. Homeowners, right? The political weighting is always going to lean towards homeownership. 
but they were very intelligent people. And we walked them through the story of why apartments versus condo in particular doesn't work. And this site was never going to be single family. It was too low density. So we basically went back in at the original purchase price, which even given the units, I think we ended up with 453 units entitled on the second go round was still good value. And were they affordable housing? They were not. That was actually entirely a market rate project. So there was no inclusionary requirements, no affordable housing. The city just politically wasn't oriented that way. Now, if you talk to them today, new council, new staff, I think they would be oriented around wanting some affordable housing. But at the time that we negotiated the deal, that was not a requirement. Okay. I'm on Google Maps. I'm at Westminster, Colorado, Dave and Buster's. What do I search on Google to find this place? If you just go just straight north from Dave and Buster's, you'll see a parking lot and then you'll see a brand new apartment project. You'll see the freeway on your left to to the west. And that was one of the reasons that made it an irreplaceable location was the market window of that 36 turnpike of people commuting back and forth from Denver to Boulder or Interlocking Corridor, which is a little north of our site, was just perfect from an apartment ownership standpoint. Your sign, if you lived here, you'd be home. I say that jokingly, but that's exactly why you have that market window as people can see it. And it was interestingly enough, far enough away that as you go north, you see the freeway diverges from the edge of the project. Mm-hmm. And so that started to sort of set back because noise is an issue when you're right next to the highway. And you mentioned that other developers didn't have the same vision. So why wouldn't a developer who wanted some business just go in, talk to city officials and say, oh, you want this? Okay, I can roll with that. It's a great question. So a couple different answers. One is the companies that were approaching in this interim period would be very large apartment development companies. So not exactly people like Trammell Crow, yep. Holland Partners, Wolf Companies would be an example. And they just had their model. They just said, look, we build this type of apartment and maybe we lay it out differently and these buildings go east and those buildings go north and the pools in the middle. Westminster and the staff at the time, particularly the planning department, was very, very particular about how they wanted the project to be. And in fact, when we went back the second time, they were still insistent that we have a parking structure underneath the buildings, like a, what I call a podium, below grade parking or at least on grade with the units stacked on top, like a concrete parking structure. And we had to really fight quite hard to eliminate that because what that does is it drives the cost structures up of the build and you're getting more units, but you're paying a lot more to build the building. So as a developer, it's always a trade-off between how much density can you get versus how much it costs to build that density and the rents that are produced from it. And in fact, our new UTH workforce housing offer in our math is a good equilibrium point between max density that's the simplest to build yet produces the best rental income. So we want to look for those equilibrium points where you can build a certain product that's in demand, preferably into undersupplied markets and undersupplied market segments, and then build it efficiently. That equilibrium is a measure of efficiency of max rent at lowest cost. In the news, when we read about a new development, the reporter usually says this is a $85 million project or $100 Mm -hmm. million project. As someone who is not in development, how can we estimate approximately 
how much the developer is making on a project based on the dollar amounts that is reported for the total project? That's a great question, Joe. And I've never had anybody ask me it that way, but I appreciate it. So there's no standard answer to the question. And that's why it's not commonly asked <laughs> because it would be the same as when you buy a value add deal and whether you're in Nashville yeah. or Columbus or Houston, they each are going to have different cost structures to buy the units. The, the rents are different. Operating expense NOI is all different, right? And then you get into this sort of magical zone of how your book says, hey, you buy for cash flow, not appreciation. Developers have the same sort of thought process, although there's additional or different metrics that we have to deal with. We still underwrite rents and operating expenses, NOI, right? That's sort of category one. Category two is what is the zoning, entitlements, build costs, new construction, rent up process. And then third, which we all in this business aspire to do well is how do we exit and when do we exit? So the difference between value add and new construction is that second component is the bill cost. And that's really where what I mentioned earlier about that build efficiency is I'll give you different examples. If you built a single family home and you rented it, that's the lowest cost to build, but lowest rental, maybe on a whole dollar basis, the way to think of it, depending on the square mm -hmm. footage. You on the opposite end of the spectrum, you got a high rise in San Francisco. It's getting very high rent, but it's got exceptionally high development impact fees and the bill costs and the land are incredibly high. So the answer of the profitability of it is always inside the deal. And yep. when you put all the variables together, do you see that it works or not? And that's why in the development domain running Proformas is the early measure of a deal's potential for success versus not. And there's a fair amount of judgments. Each variable of rent and bill cost and land costs are all put into that proforma. But that's what we have to do and make our decisions based on. Now, you guys do the same thing in the value add space, but ours is trickier because what does it cost to build yes. from market to market is so different. Whereas assessing rents and assessing operating expenses, I think is more straightforward because there's more historical data, certainly should be lots of good comps in a major urban metro area. So the answer to your question is, in a development space, we really want to be in the low 20s IRR or above. Mm -hmm. And that's really the metric that we use. And so our job as a developer working with investors is we have to make an offer to investors to invest in our new construction projects that is market superior to whatever other choices they have as all investors have choices, right? And so we have to recognize that we're a different offer than a value add. And I have this conversation all the time. People are like, hey, I'm looking at five value add deals and I'm looking at your development deal and how do they compare? So a big part of my speaking to different investors to people like yourself is to sort of highlight the differences between a value add and a new construction. Because I think new construction is a viable place to invest capital now. It's not going to be everywhere with everyone. Where I think commonly value add deals, you could probably assess on a market by market, compare nationally, demand characteristics, rents, what are the population growth characteristics. For us, we're always going to be in Southern California where the demand is very high and we're undersupplied. 
politically getting new projects approved in California and actually building them to cost effectively enough to produce a yield is a pretty high challenge. I bet. But our offer of UTH is exactly that to say, hey, look, we're a unique, uncommon offer. We're in a niche, contrarian space, being in workforce housing. And we've come up with this three-story townhome model that is different than all your other choices in the new development space. And because of all these variables that come together, we're regularly producing mid-20s IRR and above, sometimes as high as 30 or 40%, depending on the timing. Of course, IRR is time-sensitive. So speaking is to address sort of the differential between what investors have as a choice in the marketplace. And and we have to do that to be relevant and competitive in that space. Based on your experience, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? In my space as a developer, we've always focused on looking for niches and contrarian spaces. So I'll give you an example. In 2016, we sold off our last set of development deals that were in that high-density, mid-density podium space, and we started to look around. So what we identified was that everybody was building to the millennial and Gen Z marketplace. That cohort's the largest in the history of the United States. It's the right place to be demographically. If you're building apartments, life cycle, big demographic cohort. We looked at that space and we had just finished a slate of projects that met that, but we were early. We started in 2012 and pretty much had sold everything off by 2015, 2016. That we looked at that and said, that's a great space to be, but it's also highly competitive. So what the answer I'm giving you is always compete in spaces that are not competitive And that would be you're in a new innovative area, you're in a new maybe micro trend that even leads the other major trends. And we've always worked to exploit those niches. We were urban infill, Joe, before urban infill was even anything anybody talked about. 2000, 2001, urban infill, I mean, people thought we were a little crazy. So innovating and being ahead of the marketplace is not for everybody the development marketplace. And I think real estate generally is one of trends and people following trends. We've always looked to exploit new niches and new areas of market drift where everybody else isn't. So maybe it's the Warren Buffett methodology of real estate development. And I think people will listen to me and go, of course, why wouldn't you do that? The (laughs) trick is how do you identify those? right? Right? What practices are you in? of economic research and market research, and then just sheer creativity of innovating something new, that's the space that we're in. So the bottom line answer is always try to compete where others are not, where there's strong demand or undersupply or a new market trend. So for us, that's multi-generational apartment homes that are built to house families that are multi-generational. So that's our niche right now. We're gonna do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. First, quick word from our best ever partners. Best ever listeners, go to BEC20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, BEC20.com. Ever wonder how the top in real estate got there? The Invest This podcast hosted by real estate investor Scott Bauer interviews the top names in the industry, giving you the tips and tricks that help you catapult your real estate business to success. Find them at investthispodcast.com.
All right. You mentioned contrarian investing and seeing investing where there's opportunity, but others might not see it. What's a research resource or two that you like to reference? Two quick ones. One is a blog called Calculated Risk. That's written by a guy named Bill McBride. He's not an economist in the classic way. He's very housing centric and has sort of a good pragmatic corporate level executive view of the housing industry. Great resource for sort of seeing the trends. And then there's another economic research tool that's published by a website called EconPi, like E-C-O-N-P-I. And they have this bar graph analysis that's a great economic cycle tracker. And I would recommend anybody go there and look at that. Best ever way you like to give back to the community? Good question. So I'm always trying to stay where I have the best skill set and knowledge, and that's real estate development. So we regularly pro bono advise nonprofits that are looking to develop real estate. So that would be in the affordable housing space. We advised a local art nonprofit that was trying to build their headquarters. So we went in there and advised them pro bono in the real estate development space where we could earn some benefit for them. Best ever deal you've done? Best ever was the Westminster deal, the one we talked about before. That was one of the biggest we ever did. The market timing was perfect. Lennar was a great partner. So just great location, once in a lifetime deal. And how can the best ever listeners learn more about you and what you and your company is doing? Go to our website. That's www.urbanpacific.com. Take a look at the resources we have there, investor education. We have a great blog. Sign up for our weekly newsletter, which we are always trying to publish articles that track market trends in the economy related to real estate, advice and insights on the economic cycle, etc. Scott, thanks for being on the show talking about the Westminster deal, the peaks and valleys of that, and getting into the specifics of it. I love that. And I'm sure a lot of the best listeners did as well, just getting into the details as well as the emotional perhaps roller coaster, maybe not as much, but still 200,000 is 200,000 that you had hard and the recession hits and it's like, oh, okay, how do we make this happen? So really appreciate you sharing that. And thanks so much for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate you as well. Ever wonder how the top in real estate got there? The Invest This podcast hosted by real estate investor Scott Bauer interviews the top names in the industry, giving you the tips and tricks that help you catapult your real estate business to success. Find them at investthispodcast.com. Best ever listeners, go to bec20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, bec20.com.